What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Have a Little Insight. So today we have Steve Hickman. He is the executive director of the Center for Mindfulness Self-Compassion. He co-developed the Mindfulness Self-Compassion Teachers Training Program and had a hand in training over 900 self-compassion teachers around the world. So we talked to him a little bit today about what mindfulness is, how you can practice self-compassion, the inner critic that we all have, whether we realize it or not. And he even took us through a little meditation, which was kind of interesting. So we had our eyes closed and went through that with him. Um, So I hope you guys enjoy that as well. Uh, Here's the episode. I guess if we want to just kind of start off the hop here, um, we're going to be talking with you today about self-compassion, but more specifically mindfulness self-compassion. So I think the first question is, what is mindfulness exactly? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a fairly simple thing that's actually not necessarily easy, mindfulness. Uh, And it's so funny because it's so simple, but if you walk into any bookstore or you put enter mindfulness into uh, Amazon search, you find, you know, thousands of books about it. Um, But just to keep it simple, I I like to say it's essentially moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness. So moment to moment in the sense that uh, we can only pay attention in this moment, you know, no matter how much we can think about the future or remember the past and our uh, human brains have a great capacity for that. Ultimately, mindfulness is about what's here right now. So being able to stay in the moment, not to the exclusion of other moments, but in this moment to have that attention resting here is, is really valuable. So moment to moment, non-judgmental is one that often people get hung up about when you talk about mindfulness, because it sounds like there's no space for judgment or discernment or deciding the value of something. But this is about letting go of judgment when it's not actually serving you. So if you're sitting and you're listening to this podcast and you're feeling uh, that you're uncomfortable, you're bored, you really wish you were someplace else, uh, and you stay for whatever reason, that judgment is not serving you. It's just causing you suffering, right? If you make that judgment and say, well, what I need to do is to stop listening, which we don't want to have happen, but if you do, then you then you actually the judgment served you it said this is not valuable to me and i choose something else so that's a pretty mundane example but think about having chronic pain for example and hating that you have chronic pain and struggling against it even though it's actually chronic pain which means you can't actually escape it so what to whatever degree you're resisting and fighting with it you're actually multiplying the impact the negative impact by judging it So this is about where we can let go of judgment when it isn't serving us. It's not uh, surrender or giving up or not caring or saying whatever. It's really about seeing where judgment may not be serving you. So moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness. And awareness is just the foundation upon which all of this rests. If you actually tune in and notice that you're resisting or noticing that you're not in the moment, then you can let go of resisting. You can bring yourself back to the moment. So the foundation of mindfulness is really awareness. Right. And if we're moving that into self-compassion, 
it's that a lot of us are very, uh, it comes very easily to be compassionate to other people um, in general, but then it's a lot harder for us to show that same compassion to ourselves or to like not judge ourselves for making a mistake or whatever the example may be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the program Mindful Self-Compassion that was developed by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who are really the leaders in the field of self-compassion, um, you know, they've done some research that shows that 76% of people are like you described, are tend, tend to be kinder to others, to their dear friends than they are to themselves when, when things go bad or when they struggle. Something like 6% or 8% are kinder to themselves than others, which is pretty rare. And we rarely see those folks in self-compassion courses. And another 14 or whatever the number is left percent are about the same. Um, so we actually have an exercise where we ask people to reflect on how do you treat a friend and how do you treat yourself? And they find this all the time is that they are meaner to themselves than they are to, to their friends, as you said. Um, and so this is actually the connection to mindfulness. So what you said was, you know, we're often kinder to others than we are to ourselves. It took mindfulness for you to notice that. If you notice that for yourself, that this is how you might be. I'm not suggesting you are that way. I'm just <laughs> saying that in order to be to bring compassion to ourselves, the first thing we need to do is to notice when we're not being compassionate to ourselves. That's the foundation. That's actually the first of three components of self-compassion that Kristen Neff has discovered through her research, and then I find it all the time when I ask people. So the three components are mindfulness. You have to be aware that suffering or struggle is happening. You know, in other words, you just failed a test and you're beating yourself up. There's suffering involved. You know, it's not capital S suffering like concentration camps and trauma, but it's suffering, small s suffering maybe. So, so the first thing is to notice it. So that's mindfulness. The second piece is to see that suffering, struggle, is a part of being human. Everybody struggles and suffers. We feel totally alone and separate when we have a hard time. We feel like we're the only ones. We're uniquely bad. We're uniquely stupid. We can't get it. We're, not, we're ugly. Whatever it is, we feel very separate from everyone else. But actually having those thoughts and feelings is universal. Every human has them at times. So what we actually think separates us actually connects us to everyone. So we call this common humanity. So there's an awareness that I'm awareness that I'm suffering and that suffering is actually a part of human life because we're not perfect. And then the third component. So we had mindfulness, common humanity. The third component is self kindness. So once we notice we're beating ourselves up and that it hurts, and we see that this is a part of the human experience that every human falls short and fails sometimes, then we can ask ourselves, well, what do I need? Could I comfort and soothe myself? Could I encourage or strengthen myself in some way? What do I need in this moment? Just like what I would give to a dear friend who is having the same kind of a moment. So that's the self-kindness component. So mindfulness, common humanity, self-kindness. Just one last thing about that is we often know these three components by their opposites when they're not there. So mindfulness, we notice we can, I don't know if notice is the right word, but we're often not present, right? We're often lost in the future, back in the past, distracted, preoccupied. So we're often sort of mindless. 
or we're sort of sort of hyper focused and and kind of ruminating over things. So it's like the opposite of mindless. We're so mindful that it's painful because we're just grinding over something over and over and over again. So that and in the middle is is this mindfulness. So and then common humanity, we often know it by its sort of opposite, which is isolation, which I mentioned. So we forget that we're part of a human family. We forget that everyone is imperfect. Everyone fails and falls short sometimes. So we're often in that space. And then the self-kindness, we often know the opposite of that, which is self-criticism, right? We know that we beat ourselves up. We know that we give ourselves a hard time when we don't do well, when we have when we face a failure or a hardship of some sort. So as I said, we sort of know this sort of mindless, isolated self-criticism, uh, perhaps more often than the opposite, which is what we would sometimes call a loving connected presence. In other words, loving is the kindness, connect, connected is the common humanity, and the presence is the mindfulness. So we're going for a loving connected presence, but we often know it by its absence. Mm. <laughs> Still thinking, Jenny? <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to to take it in because I can relate a lot to that inner critic and that negativity. And then mm. I try to think, you know, like, well, how would my mom talk to me or how would my friend talk to me? Because the things they've often said to me out loud are quite different. But I still find that inner negative voice or inner critic, if we want to call it, always sneaks back in and goes, yeah, but not enough or do more right. or need to work harder or hustle harder or nah, somebody's better than you. That's why you didn't get it. And yeah. I guess the most basic question I have right now is where do you start? Because I guess this all revolves around and maybe we can touch on this is having a relationship with yourself. And from the sounds of it, the science even dictates that like, we really fundamentally, to start with, most of us don't have a great relationship with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, uh, very well said. I think first of all, we first and foremost, we often don't even realize that we have a relationship with ourselves. We are sort of like we are fused with this sense of us, uh, and so that's the first step: is to see do I do I have a relationship with myself? Which of course we do. You know, it's conflicted <laughs> quite often. Uh, especially, yeah, when we have that tendency for self-criticism. And if you want, I could come back to this. There's there's some explanation for why we are this way um, that's sort of evolutionary, um, which I can get to, but I'm kind of more thinking right now about sort of what do we do with this because you asked that question. Um, so first of all, one other thing about the inner critic, well, several things, but the first one is there's an amazing video out there put out by the Dove Soap people, and I keep meaning to kind of save the link, but I think if you go on YouTube and you search Dove and self-criticism or self-compassion, I think it comes right up. It's, it's actually in French, but it's really excellent example of what they did was they took a, a young woman or a few young women and they interviewed them and they asked them, like, what are the things that you say to yourself in your head about your appearance? And these are reasonably average looking people. And, but the things that they say to themselves are just horrendous, kind of like what you're making reference to. You know, your, your nose is too small and your 
teeth are crooked and your breasts aren't big enough and just, but like in really harsh terms. So they interviewed her, they gathered all of these things that they, that their inner critics said to them. And then they set up a scenario in a cafe where two women are sitting across the table in some Parisian cafe on the street, you know, in a neighborhood or whatever. And one is essentially saying that stuff out loud to her friend as if, She's saying, your nose is too small and your teeth aren't straight and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're watching the reactions of the people around them. And people are horrified. She's speaking these things that, you know, in the person's head, she put up with them for years. But when you say it out loud, it's like, I would never say something like that out loud to another person. And yet I'm willing to say that to myself. So that just is kind of a highlight um, or low light, depending on how you look at it. Um, but the question of how to work with this is really kind of interesting. This is one of the aspects of self-compassion that I find most kind of uh, intriguing is that when we look a little closer at the inner critic, we often find that its motives are actually quite good. It's their execution that's a problem. When you drill down, often what you find is the inner critic is trying in some way or other to keep you safe to try to protect your feelings, to protect you in some way from hurt. And, uh, but it's just doing it in a really, you know, unfortunate way. So if you think about, you know, the uh, parenting is a good example. Like if you've got a small child and, you know, you, you, the child is about to step out into the street and you shout, get out of the street, you idiot, you know, because it's just a reaction. You just, you want the kid to be safe and it's the only thing that comes to mind and, and it does the job in the short term because it gets them out of the street, hopefully. But you amplify that over time, and then it becomes this sort of like, like your inner voice is like shouting at you to keep you safe, saying, you know, don't try that. You're too, you're too stupid. You'll never get into law school. Why do you even take the LSAT? It's not really, its primary motivation is not to be mean. It's trying to prevent you from a feeling of failure of what, you know, not wanting you to feel what it's like to be rejected. So, so what can be happened with self-compassion, because you can't just say, oh, I'll just be nice to myself and the inner critic will go away. Or, you know, I'll argue with the inner critic, which is usually what we do, right? We say, no, I, I'm smart, I can do it. And it says, well, yeah, you think so? What about that time when you failed that test in seventh grade and, you know, and like, you know, you know, it's, it's always gonna outsmart you. So you have to find a way to live around it, just to acknowledge that, hey, dude, I see you're trying to help me, but it's not really actually working. Thank you, see you want, me, want to keep me safe, but I'm actually, I do wanna do this and here's why. And I'm willing to risk the possibility that I might fail because it's important to me. So you're, what you're doing is finding, Rather than arguing with the critic, you're finding the other compassionate voice that you also have inside of you that wants you to change, but for very different reasons, wants to help you grow and to achieve things that you want to achieve. It's the voice that notices, like what you just described, Jenny, um, the, the voice that notices the inner critic is kind of this quiet little voice that says, no, that's not right. You know, you deserve to be happy, you deserve to have the things that you want. Um, you're, you have qualities, you have a reason to want these things or whatever it might be. You're just giving voice to that, answering 
not really arguing with the critic, but just making room, kind of like clearing the brush so that the plant can grow that that supportive, compassionate voice instead. And then little by little, the critic loses its power over you. It still is there yammering in the background, but you don't listen to it so much. <laughs> you don't let it contain you, so to speak. It reminds me of like that angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. You know, you have your <laughs> self-compassion on one side going like, yeah, you can do it. You're a good person. Everything's going to be great. And then you have your little devil who's like, never going to make it. Life's going to be terrible <laughs> for you. You suck at everything. Like it reminds yeah. me of those two things. And, yeah. uh, and you can't get rid of that one. So you just sort of like bow to it. Like, thanks. I see what you're trying to do here, but I got other plans. You know, just have a seat. I'm going to listen to this other side. And the other side, you know, frankly, really shouldn't be telling you everything's going to be fine. You're going to you're going to succeed at everything. You're going to win. You know, it says I believe in you and I believe you can give it your best shot and your likelihood of winning is better. It's like a good coach. You know, coach is going to like encourages you. It's not going to tell you you're going to guarantee to win every race, but it's there and it says I know you have it in you and I'm going to help you find it. Uh, so it's not an unrealistic other side. It's more of a like supportive other side that knows you well. Right. And just to kind of make it really practical. Um, so there's, there's a small amount of research, but good solid research of how self-compassion training can help people make change. Cause that's where we often talk about the inner critic is when we want to make change. We want to quit smoking or start exercising or you know, change our diet or whatever it might be. So a colleague of ours in New Zealand uh, did a study where she was working with people with diabetes and half of the people got uh, in the study basically got treatment as usual, the medications and doctor visits, et cetera. And half got treatment as usual plus a mindful self-compassion course. So they actually got training in being self-compassionate. And the people in the mindful self-compassion program ended up with um, basically better mood, better quality of life, more self-compassion, et cetera, which is not terribly surprising. It's a course in self-compassion. It should cause all those. But those people in the experimental group also had improved blood glucose levels. So in other mm -hmm. words, physiologically, they got more healthy. So that doesn't come from just being kind to yourself. You don't suddenly like eliminate glucose more easily or nothing physiologically happens. As far as we know, nothing magic. What happens is people take better care of themselves. When they're more self-compassionate, they don't beat themselves up should they kind of like slip off their diet. They just get back on it. You know, they, they say, oh, you know, I really want to, you know, exercise more because I care about myself. I want to achieve this. They're not trying to beat themselves with the stick. They're trying to use the carrot of self-compassion. So, so it has these sort of measurable effects, which says that people – are better able to make desired changes when they're kinder to themselves. Hmm. Yeah, it's not like a, a direct link to it changing you physically, but it can help you maybe take yeah take better care of yourself in other ways, like eating better or when you're tired, like allowing yourself to just rest or if you need to recharge saying like, no, I, I don't want to do that tonight. Like I'm just taking a day for myself and that that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that actually feeds into a really common misconception about self-compassion, because you could take what you just said 
to the extreme and then just like never get off the couch and only eat Doritos and, you know, whatever <laughs> else, right? Um, but it's not self-indulgent. So that's what people will think self-compassion. Oh, you're going to be self-compassionate, you know, and then you're getting the mani-pedi after that and then the spa treatment and then, you know, whatever. It's not necessarily just self-indulgence, just giving yourself what feels good. And the best example of that, again, kind of coming back to parenting is, you know, if you've got a kid and they're five years old and they come down in the morning and they say, mommy, I want ice cream for breakfast. So the indulgent thing would be to say, sure, would you like chocolate or vanilla, you know, and they'll be super happy. But, you know, as a parent, presumably that that's not the most compassionate response. It is the one that would make everybody well, make your child happy, but it's not actually kind to them in the long term. Uh, and, uh, you know, a healthy breakfast and ice cream for dessert is fine. So so this is the same way with self-compassion. It's not just giving you self what feels right. It's giving yourself what you need and and in the bigger sense of that. And um, so providing for yourself. And actually it, what we know from the research is that when people are more self-compassionate, they don't lose their edge. They actually get an edge because they're willing to persist longer and try harder at things because they don't beat the hell out of themselves when they fall short. Right when they fail, it's all going. It's always going to happen, right? But the point is, when they fail, they actually say, "Damn, I, you know, I can learn something from this. I know I have it in me. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try harder. I believe in myself, and I could have done better. And yes, this is this is where I didn't do as well, and where I have to do better. And that makes them want to keep trying. But think about the alternative: is someone who just beats themselves up and they're perfectionistic. It works for a while and then it stops working. You know, then nobody wants, they don't actually want to try because it's so painful when they fall short. And so there's always, they're actually losing the edge that they actually think they're getting from being perfectionistic and driven. So it's kind of paradoxical, but there is that, that self-compassion actually enhancing motivation rather than taking it away. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. It is. I'm feeling all like excited. Um, I'm curious because we hear a lot about mindfulness more in today's world, I think, than ever. And like a lot about meditation and that it's a practice. So is self-compassion something we can practice? And if so, how? Uh, yeah, it is a practice because, um, you know, it's a way of meeting ourselves when we have a hard time or when we fail or fall short. So where mindfulness is a more, to some degree, is a more of an ongoing practice, you know, like maybe you practice meditation on a regular basis every morning or something like that. It is beneficial to do the same with self-compassion, to just cultivate a kind of safe and supportive inner space, so to speak, so that when you do encounter difficulty, you have the presence of mind and the mindfulness and the kindness to meet yourself in the midst of it. So yes, you can just learn to uh, do something, to do some self-compassion practice. And I'll, I'll, I'll introduce a brief one in just a moment for you that people can use. Um, but you can use it in the moment when you have a difficult time. But if you want it to be more sustainable, if you want to be able to catch yourself sooner when you kind of slip down that slippery slope of criticism, self-criticism or whatever, 
you really need to cultivate it on a regular basis so that you you are cultivating a, a kind heart. We all have one, but it's just the more that we're actually practicing being kind to ourselves, the more likely it's going to happen spontaneously when we have a hard time. So the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is being taught by people all over the world, um, uh, including by the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion that I run, um, has in it a number of different kinds of practices that one can learn. The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer has of the, essentially all of the major elements of the MSC program in it. It's, it's published widely available all over the place. Um, but one practice that we kind of introduced very early is a very short kind of pocket practice of self-compassion that I'll, I'll share with you now, just kind of walk, walk you through it. This is something that harnesses those three components of self-compassion, mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness into a quick, way of responding to yourself when you meet a moment of suffering, when you meet a struggle, when you get stuck, when you fail, fall short, etc. So well, I'll just walk you through it. It's a little, for the purposes of talking you through it here, I'll have you call to mind a situation, but the idea is that it's not for you to call to mind situations, but to encounter the situations in your life that are tough and bring it to bear there. So it's called a self-compassion break. So for now, we might do it a little bit like a meditation. You might even be willing to just pause wherever you are, whoever's listening, and maybe even drop your attention inside, maybe closing your eyes or softening your gaze. And just taking a moment to feel yourself here, wherever here happens to be, maybe noticing your breathing, your body, And as you're ready, as the mind settles just a little bit, calling to mind for this brief exercise, some situation in your life that's causing you some stress or difficulty, something you're struggling with. And maybe for this first time through, choosing something of a moderately stressful or difficult situation, maybe a three or a four on the one to 10 scale, not your most difficult situation. Maybe just letting yourself notice, you know, call it to mind, have a sense of it in your mind's eye, who's involved, what took place, what is it that is upsetting or difficult. Letting it just take up residence in your mind for a moment. Just noticing perhaps as you call it to mind how it manifests, if it does, in the body. Maybe you notice a point of tension somewhere or a little warmth or heat, whatever is here. So this is mindfulness, just acknowledging that something is here in this moment, tuning in. So whatever this struggle may be, actually noticing that suffering or struggle is a part of life. That this is how it feels when other people struggle as well. This is a part of being human. Just seeing this particular struggle in you as being a part of the human experience that other people 
feel somewhat the same way in similar situations. Common humanity. And then, seeing if you can ask yourself the fundamental question of self-compassion. Given this difficult situation that you share, perhaps, with other humans in some way, this difficulty, this suffering, this pain, what do you need? What, could, what do you need just now? And maybe you might give yourself some form of kindness, maybe placing a hand on your heart or some other place on your body that's soothing and supportive, just feeling the kindness and warmth of your own touch. Just feeling your kind intention to meet that struggle or suffering with warmth, just because it's hard. Not needing to make it go away just now, but just meeting yourself in the midst of it. This is self-kindness. The third component of self-compassion. And when you're ready, you can let go of the practice, allowing your eyes to open, attention to come back to the space that you're in. So this is a, like I said, a portable practice. We did it as a formal meditation, but it can be done pretty quickly. Just noticing, you know, mindfulness. Ah, oh, this is this is tough. This sucks. Saying, you know, oh yeah, and this is this is part of being human. You know, other people feel this when they face situations like this. And what do I need? Could I be kind to myself in this moment? So this kind of boils it down and uh, makes it something you can do in five seconds or five minutes. It's not intended to change how you feel. That's the tricky part. We're, we're not practicing self-compassion to get rid of feelings. We're actually practicing self-compassion because we're having them to meet ourselves in the midst of struggle the way we would meet a good friend. You know, if a friend had their mother died, there's nothing you're going to say that's going to bring their mother back. And we know the kind of fruitlessness of saying, well, this they're in a better place or whatever it might be. What we, what we need when we're suffering like that, when we're grieving, is just to feel the presence of other people, to feel the support and kindness. So this is sort of for ourselves saying, yeah, this is hard. I get it. And I'm here for you. But just saying it to yourself. Uh, you know, when your child has the flu and you bring them a cold compress or something cool to drink or, you, you know, you give them a hug, you're not doing that because you think you're treating the flu. You're not, you're not antiviral in and of yourself, right? You're just bringing warmth and kindness and comfort and soothing because they're having a hard time, because they're uncomfortable, because they're in pain. And that's what we're doing for ourselves, just saying, yeah, I know this is hard and I'm here for you. Surprising how transformative that can be for people. Yeah, even like the experience that I had was just becoming aware of the fact that like I am struggling um, and then just like acknowledging and accepting that. Right. And I noticed like kind of where I carry a lot of tension right now is like in my jaw, like in the sides. And I kind of felt that like loosen up just a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. One of the tricky things about self-compassion, it's great that you notice that. And sometimes that doesn't happen. 
<laughs> I don't mean to be a buzzkill, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes we give ourselves compassion and it quote works in the sense that it, that something shifts or changes that we feel more relaxed, more open or whatever. But that's, as I was saying, that's not the primary intention or goal. It sometimes happens. So it'll happen some, and this is a good kind of caveat for people who try the self-compassion break or other self-compassion practice. Just one more time, we give ourselves compassion, not to feel better, but because we feel bad. And so that means that, you know, the next time you're struggling, you can't fall asleep and you think, ah, I'm going to do that self-compassion break because that was really nice because that made me relax. And you try it and you fall asleep and you think, ah, I've got it. This is it. You know, this is the, the solution to all life's problems right here, you know. And then the next night you can't sleep and then you do the same thing again and nothing happens. And then you get frustrated and you get mad at yourself and you say, oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't even do this right. And this self-compassion stuff's no good. Well, that wasn't the point. It wasn't actually to get you to feel something else. It was to meet you in the middle of the suffering that you're having because it's hard. So I just say that because people will start to chase that demon or something, right? To like do self-compassion to change how you feel. Well, it's never worked, right? Have you ever had a time when you were like sad or depressed and someone said, cheer up? Like, you know, you just (laughs) want to like strangle them in that moment, right? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. The worst advice anyone can give anyone else is don't worry. Right. Because when in the history of mankind has that ever worked, partially because as soon as you even if you were to say, oh, OK, OK, I'm not going to worry. Your brain is going to say, worry, worry about what? And then you're going to have to say the thing that you're not supposed to be worrying about. And then you're worrying about it. Again, right? The more you push it away, the more it comes in. So this is like letting go of changing it and just meeting yourself in the middle of it because it's hard. Yeah. And. That kind of makes me just think about uh, emotion in general, because, you know, there's a lot of the like fake it till you make it put on a happy face, that kind of stuff. Right. And I think it just it represses and pushes down certain emotions that we may be feeling, whether they're like anger or sadness. Um, But do you think like part of part of that is just like allowing yourself to accept how you feel and just process it? Yeah. And, and accept, you know, you slip past that word pretty quickly and that's a big one. Uh, most, mostly because it has a lot of baggage acceptance. People, when people hear acceptance, they, they kind of hear surrender, you know, or capitulation or something like that. Um, but accept isn't that, even though that's what it, it feels like, because people will say, you just have to accept that, you know, just accept it. Well, that's not always that easy. Accept really means accept that this feeling is here now. So when you're sad, could you accept the sadness that's sitting on your doorstep because that's where it is, it's here, right? And and the question becomes, how could you relate to that sadness? We're back to your relationship to yourself. So yourself, you have emotions and they serve some different purposes and you can't really push them away because like I said, when you push them away, when you resist persists, Whatever you push away mm-hmm. just comes back stronger, right? So could you instead allow yourself to be with it and to say, wow, yeah, I'm sad. Sadness is here. It's a nice way to talk about it rather than to say I'm sad or I'm angry because you are not those things. Those are just experiences you're having. So to be able to say, oh, anger is here. Frustrations arising. 
You know, sadness is descending on me. It separates you from the emotion because you have that in relationship with the emotion too. So self-compassion kind of gives you the strength and the resilience to stay present even when suffering is here. That's where it kind of comes into the mix is it allows you to open to those things because they're, they're here. And there's no sense trying to pretend they're not or trying to push them away because that just complicates matters. You know, if you resist um, sleeplessness, you get insomnia. You know, re you resist anxiety, you get panic. Like my friend Chris Germer says, when you resist your daughter's lousy boyfriend, you get a lousy son-in-law. <laughs> you know, these, <laughs> these things happen, right? So instead of resisting, could you open to them because they're here? Now, some of them are more powerful than others. And if you've got like a lot of powerful and strong emotions, and maybe you've had a history of trauma or other kinds of experiences where your emotions are really like tidal waves, you don't have to open to them entirely. You know, you can just kind of like peek open a little bit. You can swing that door open a tiny bit and close it again. But self-compassion is what gives you the kind of resilience to be able to do that, to open and then close, to meet those things. We sometimes say the mindful self-compassion program could be called the opening to pain and suffering program. The problem, it would be a terrible marketing move because <laughs> yeah. no one would sign up, right? But that's kind of what it is. It's opening, and it's not just opening to pain and suffering. It's opening to your whole life, too, just to kind of get a little bit of the, the pleasant stuff in here. It's also opening up to, to savoring and gratitude and appreciation, sort of positive elements of being human, opening to joy. It's the whole package, it's not just I'm closing to that stuff and I'm opening to this stuff. It's opening to all of it because it's all human experience. There's no sense denying that there's another part of our experience, even if we have a tendency to go there, to the, to the problems, to the challenges and the difficulties. Yeah, I think it's, uh, the opening and closing is really neat because we tend to easily open to like the positive emotions, joy, fun, you know, when we feel really good and really alive, it's really easy to open to those things. And we want more and more and more of that. And it makes sense that we don't want to feel sad or acknowledge our sadness. And we're told like, don't wallow, don't just sit in it. Don't just, but acknowledging that there's a difference between being like, hi, sadness, you're here to wallowing in it. But yeah, it's just that we're taught to avoid those feelings because they're considered negative. Like when we did the exercise, I felt myself going, okay, other people have a hard time with this and it's not just you and people have told you this. It will change. And I noticed my inner dialogue start shifting because I just paid attention to the fact that, okay, this is how it is right now, but maybe it could be different. And I noticed my brain start shifting as we did it, mm. which was really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating what we can do. <laughs> We're so entrenched in our old patterns, our mental ruts, that it's hard to see them, you know, when you're in them. And as soon as you get a little bit bumped up out of them, then you see, oh, wow, holy cow, like, look at that. It's a whole different way of looking at it. There's a comedian, I'm not remembering his name, but uh, he says, um, I used to believe that the brain was the most important organ in the body until I realized which organ was telling me that, mm -hmm. right? Like you get outside of it enough to see, well, of course the brain is telling you that it is the most important thing in the, you know, in the body. 
but you don't until until you bump up out of that rut you don't see that that's what's going on right you don't see the the wizard behind the curtain you don't see mm. these patterns until you see the possibility of a different pattern so the same thing with self-criticism some people have been living with horrendous self-critics all their lives and and it's not like oh i have this inner critic that tells me stuff it's like i suck I'm no good. I'm not smart enough. It's there is no separation. There's no relationship. It's just truth, but it's not. I mean, that's to the person's experience is that they just when you when someone tells you something often enough, over and over, whether it's true or not, you're going to tend to believe it. That's how certain people have made a way in politics recently. But we won't go into that so much. But the point <laughs> is that you're, if your inner critic is telling you something over and over, day after day after day, from childhood on, not surprising you would start to believe it was true, but it's just a thought. It's just a, you know, thoughts are not facts. That's what we start to learn when we pay attention, that these patterns are just patterns. That doesn't mean we have to go down them over and over again if we actually recognize them. That's the power of mindfulness, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've heard before a lot of people have started saying like, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great bumper sticker. I've seen it many times. That's sort of the essence of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, you may have already touched on it a little bit, but what other like outcomes could people expect to, to see or to have from practicing more self-compassion? Um, yeah, it's, it's always tricky because I think, uh, I mean, there is good science behind self-compassion being related to all kinds of things, perspective, taking, comp making compromise, getting through difficult, even traumatic experiences or resilience, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I like to say your mileage may vary, you know, it really may depend <laughs> upon what, what your self-critic or your self-criticism or your lack of self-compassion looks like for you. So for some people, shame is a particularly challenging, it's perhaps the most challenging emotion. It sort of stems from a fear of not being ultimately loved, which is kind of tied into survival when you trail, when you track it back. Um, so self-compassion is an antidote to shame. So that when something bad happens, you're more resilient. You actually bounce back. You don't go into a shame spiral. For other people, it's about motivation, you know, or um, it being more sort of poised and strong in in relationships. So, Kristen Neff is is a, has a book coming out in June uh, on what she calls fierce self compassion, which is the the kind of strong side of self-compassion, we often will say that self-compassion has both a yin and a yang side. So yin is the sort of stereotypically feminine, sort of softer, warmer, kinder side that speaks to like nurturing and comforting and soothing yourself, which is a, a good part of self-compassion. But it, it also has a yang, a more action-oriented side, that is more about protecting, providing, and motivating. So, so it has both of those. So that we actually, if we're more self-compassionate, sure, we might be kinder and warmer to ourselves when we have a hard time, but it might also empower us to take action, to say no, to stand up to injustice, you know, to take action in the world because you can tolerate the difficult feelings that comes with it and you can stand up for yourself and what 
you believe in, in a really strong, powerful way. So protecting, you know, to protect yourself or other people, to motivate, to, to act, to step up and to say back off or to say no to something is a, is a huge act of self-compassion because it's, it's taking care of you, right? Providing for yourself, actually kind of seeing, well, what is it I need? Now I need to seek this out. It's not a passive wait till it comes to me because I'm just kind of indulging myself. It's really empowering about, uh, you know, providing for what I need and then motivating. Like I said earlier, the motivating change, it actually encourages you like a good coach to, to pursue the things that are important to you. So, so it has both of those. So I think it could empower people. It can help them to feel more energized, more um, empowered to pursue things that are important, to um, take risks and challenges, to sort of he- feel the, hear the inner critic and do it anyway kind of thing. So it, I guess it's a long way of saying I think it depends on where your problem with self-compassion might be as to how it might impact you. But it's really to the point now where I know I've understood that some editors of scientific journals have told people who've submitted studies of self-compassion that like, if it's about like, how is self is self-compassion good for you in some way or another, they're saying like enough, like we have more than enough evidence to know that self-compassion is positive in all the right areas and, you know, reduces all the negative things that we're concerned about. That's kind of a given now. Now we want to know, can you train it and, and a lot more detail kind of research, but, but it's pretty much like it has a, a significant role in basically all the sort of positive attributes. Oh, yeah. One other thing. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> just one last thing. I just think this is important um, that can happen for people when they first start to practice self-compassion, whether it's, you know, reading it in a book or, um, uh, sorry, when I said book, I just reminded myself that I have just finished writing the self-compassion for dummies, which will be out in June. So that's my little plug for the, for the book. But anyway, when you practice self-compassion, especially if you're new to it, and especially if you've had a hard time in your life, you've had a lot of struggles, maybe trauma, Um, sometimes what happens is that when we first start to be kind to ourselves, we don't get the desired effect. We don't feel all warm and fuzzy. We might actually have the opposite, a kind of upwelling of difficult feelings, anger, frustration, irritation, something else. This is a phenomenon that we are well familiar with, and uh, we call it backdraft. Uh, If you're familiar with it, it's Mm -hmm. a firefighting term, and the idea Mm -hmm. is that the firefighter comes into the room and uh, into a house and there's a room and the door shut. They put their hand on the door to see if it's hot because if it's hot, that means there's fire on the other side. And if they just swing open that door, if the fire's consumed all the oxygen, the oxygen rushes in, the fire rushes out. And it's super dangerous. So the equivalent is in our human hearts. If a heart has accumulated a lifetime of suffering, has needed compassion and wasn't getting it, was getting the opposite of compassion, you know, like you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. The heart becomes hot with suffering. And we learn to get by without kindness, because when we look for kindness, we get the opposite. So it just kind of like hardens the heart a little bit. If you think of it like a furnace, the fire is burning in there, but the furnace is shut closed. And so at first, we may have the instinct like, I I really need self-compassion. And when you practice it, it flings that door open and all that suffering kind of comes flowing out in a way. 
what it means is not that you've done anything wrong. It means that you're in exactly the right place, but you need to titrate the dose. That maybe you need to go a little slower. We say like walk slowly, go farther. It might be wise to sort of begin to give yourself some kindness, open that furnace a little bit and then close it again. And little by little, you can open it more over time. So I just say that because I sometimes people hit that wall, they have a moment of backdraft and then they give up. And I just want to kind of send that message that if that happens, it happens for many people and it's a sign you're on the right track. You just need to slow down a little bit, be a little kinder to yourself. And maybe you might want to seek support of a self-compassion teacher or a self-compassion program to get through that difficulty, because I think the support of other people and a, a good teacher can help. Hmm. Well, we usually close off by asking if there's any other last little bit of insight that you want to share with us, whether it's related or not. But I think that's a beautiful <laughs> way to end it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I guess the only thing I have as we come to a close is for anybody who's looking to either learn more about you or more about mindful self-compassion, where would you steer them? Probably the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion website, which is uh, Center for MSC. So Center, F-O-R-M-S-C dot org. Everything you ever wanted to know about self-compassion is there. I will also mention um, Kristen Neff's website, self-compassion, just self-compassion dot org. Uh, I think it's self-compassion.org. When you search self-compassion on Google, her site comes up ahead of the centers. Her site has um, much some similar information, but one thing, if you're really into the research, uh, she has a, a huge bibliography and a lot of downloadable PDFs of scientific articles related to self-compassion by various categories. So if you're kind of a, a science head, you want to see the research, that's the place to go for, for information. But the center for MSC.org is, is a great place for self-compassion more generally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I mean, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed this and I feel like I've even learned a lot myself. And um, the fact that listeners will have even that little exercise to get them started was, is, was, is just awesome. So I really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It was great to have you. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, it's not good for a, for a podcast, but I feel almost speechless after that. Um, I just noticed when we talked to him how much my inner critic is active all the time in telling me things um, I can't do or I'm not good enough for or like even just when my stress is high, just beating myself down more instead of taking care of myself. And it was so cool in the meditation how... I felt my inner dialogue start to shift even just a little bit. And I love the analogies. Like when your kid's sick, you can't make them better, but you can like hold them and bring them a cold compress and make them like just provide that comfort and like that insight of just like, it's not about changing how you feel, but like even just wrapping yourself in a cozy blanket kind of idea. Yeah, I don't really know what else that I can add. I just, I felt personally attached to this one because this was something that I had heard about a while back and I had started trying to practice myself because I would 
catch myself just saying things like, oh, you broke that thing. Like, you're so stupid. And, you know, just little things like that. And you become aware mm-hmm. of it. And even sometimes I say it out loud. And I'm like, what did I just say to myself? <laughs> so it's something that I've started to try and practice and implement. But talking to him, it just gave me so much more insight into it. And yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it will help help people at least set them in a direction of being more compassionate to themselves or just reaffirming maybe what they've already learned. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting when you say that, the things you say out loud to yourself, because I found myself walking out the door the other day and being like saying to my partner, I'm like, it's not your fault. I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm. And she was like, whoa, that's not a nice way to talk to yourself. And I was thinking, eh, whatever. I was an idiot. It doesn't matter. But it is (laughs) like just listening to him, how important it is to be nice to yourself and how that can impact so many things. Like it's such a ripple effect. Yeah, we don't even realize how much our internal dialogue or critic, as he put it, has such an impact on us or like our words that we use on ourselves have an impact on us because like over time it it builds up and then it just becomes like a bit of a belief about yourself, whether you're saying it in in a joking way or not, I think. Right. Um, But yeah, I would like to hear other people's thoughts on this. So if you guys had listened and you want to share maybe uh, some of your experience or if you've tried the meditation or anything like that, you can hit us up. We have uh, our email, have a little insight at gmail.com. And on Instagram, we are at Hallie podcast. And yeah. Yeah. If, um, if this is your jam, if this is what you're into, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment, leave a rating, a review, or you can follow us on Spotify as well or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. So tune in, enjoy, and uh, I hope you're out there having a good week wherever you are, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Take care of yourselves.